So workforce housing is important to us because it's, it's, it's housing for what I call the backbone of America. It's for firefighters, teachers, nurses, you know, nurses uh, police officers, uh, service workers like hotel and restaurant and retail workers. I'd like to welcome our listeners to the Bolus Beat podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bolus. The Bolus Company is Northern New England's largest commercial real estate services firm with offices in Portland, Maine, as well as Manchester and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We've been selling and leasing real estate in Maine and New Hampshire since 1975. This podcast is designed to provide insight into Maine's business movers and shakers. And speaking of business leaders, I'd like to welcome Kim Rogers to the Bolus Beat. Kim is a real estate developer and investor in both Maine and New Hampshire. Kim is also a 60-year-old father of two grown children, 32-year-old son Max and 30-year-old daughter Olivia. Kim grew up in Wilton, Maine and moved to York, Maine at the age of 11. From there, Kim went to Phillips Exeter Academy and then to Colby College in Waterville, where he received a BA in Economics and Administrative Sciences. Kim now lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire with his wife, Anya. In August 2011, Kim left his job as district manager and regional sales manager at the company True Blue. It's one of the largest private employers in the U.S. to take over the reins of the family's commercial real estate business from his father, George. Under Kim's leadership, the GL Rogers team has nearly tripled the assets under partnership, ownership, and management. The growth was accomplished through three successful private placement offerings and by repositioning commercial real estate assets to reflect the continuing growth of the online economy and the influence of changing demographics on spending patterns. Welcome to the Bolus Beat, Kim. Thank you, Greg. I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So, Kim, you were working at True Blue, which is the New York Stock Exchange company, to come back to Maine to take over the family business. What was the reasoning behind leaving such a lucrative career and coming back to me. Well, at first I was a little reluctant to come back. And then uh, um, as my father unfortunately got sicker and it became apparent that there was going to have to be some kind of transition in the family and some of the family friends, investors that have been uh, with the company for literally 30, 40 years, um, came, reached out to me and said, uh, somebody has to come back and run the company and protect our investments and protect the family investments. And, and so, so I thought kind of, about it. And, it was kind of an obligation for, that you felt? Yeah, it was an obligation. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the family has a lot of money, you know, invested in commercial real estate assets. And, uh, and the family is extended family. It's aunts, uncles, you know, um, and then there's a lot of sort of family friends from my dad's generation that are, are investors or are investors. Um, and, uh, and so I, I felt like uh, even though for me it was going to actually be a pay cut <laughs> yeah. to come back and run the family business, uh, that it was important for the family that I do that. Are you glad you did? I, I am. You know, uh, I was working, at, you know, before working in staffing, I was in working in the construction development business. But, um, in, you know, in staffing, it's a very high turnover. You know, you're putting people out to work. Um, you're always looking for new opportunities to put people to work. And, uh, and so it's a very fast-paced environment. Uh, 
people sometimes uh, do odd things on the jobs, and so there's a lot of, uh, uh, of customer service uh, in, in the staffing business as well. Um, and so when I came back and I took over the family company, it, you know, commercial real estate is not a fast-paced uh, no, not. <laughs> business. And so at first I was sitting at my desk going, the phone's not ringing. You know, people aren't <laughs> running into my office. I don't have to fly somewhere. <laughs> it was an adjustment. It was really quiet, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I invested with your father on one deal. Oh, did it you? It was an oil well deal. Oh, really? And, wow. Um, I can't believe how poorly it turned out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> I got a nice tax write-off. If it's right a dry off. hole, it's there's nothing to be said. I yeah, think we or, went down like fifteen hundred feet, and he said, "No, that's it. We're not going down any further." Right. And I'm thinking, just another five hundred feet. Maybe there's something there. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. I. You know. I spent a couple of years out of college working for him, and they were really active in uh, wildcatting. Yes. Uh, back then, and uh, they had some successes, but I would say for every good well, they probably had at least one dry well, if not more. Yeah. 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 It, it, for me, it was a learning experience. It was also enjoyable because I was uh, investing with your dad, who I admired. Mm -hmm. but, oh, so thank you, you. So Kim, you, let, let me ask you about your name, Kim. Right. You're not Asian. No. <laughs> and oftentimes, Kim's. You know. What, yeah. What's the story so. You know, my mom is from Finland, and in Finland they have a boy's name Kimo, and she's actually a Swedish-speaking Finn. And in and Sweden, uh, it's not uncommon to have a, a, a boy named Kim. You know, or but sometimes as women to a boy too. Named Sue. Yeah, it's like a boy named Remember Sue. That song, exactly. And so, and then there was Rudyard Kipling's uh, Kim, which yes. was written. 60 years ago or so, and uh, my mom just thought Kim would be a great name for me. Uh, my dad, who was American, uh, was like, I don't know about that, you know, and he tried to push back, but he, he didn't win that battle. Yeah, yeah. And so it's been interesting. Uh, I have to say that people certainly remember my name because it's a, a unusual for a guy to have that name. No, but not great. unusual, but not unheard of. Every now and then, I'll run into somebody who is also named Kim and who is a man. So, yeah. and you have an instant bond. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you moved back east. You took over the family business. Um, what kind of properties and what kind of financial condition did you find? Uh, everything was really well run. Uh, my dad had a small staff uh, that uh, were very well trained, understood how to run the business, and uh, um, but they were maintaining. The, there was no acquisitions. There was maybe the occasional sale of a property just for cash flow reasons. Um, so it was sort of static, but the properties themselves were well maintained and. Um, you know, as you get on in years, your appetite for leverage in this business goes down, sure I think, does. for most people anyway in, in this business. And so I came in and I felt like things were pretty much under leveraged. Uh, there wasn't very much debt. And, uh, and not that I like to go super lever, levered <laughs> yeah. on everything, but, um, you know, 
there was opportunity to uh, refinance properties, take some money out, and maybe acquire another property, or you know, yeah, leverage it out and expand the portfolio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there is a such thing. There is a thing such as uh, good debt, right? Right. Uh, exactly. As opposed to bad debt. Right. Um, and if used smartly, you can use it to your advantage. Exactly. Uh, you know, you just you you want to. You know, debt service coverage ratios are really important to us. They're important to the lenders too, obviously. Um, and you know, you just, you know, we look at it, especially on multi-tenant deals. You know, if we lose a tenant, what what does it look like? If we lose two tenants, what does it look like? So, kind of like a stress test at the banks. Yeah, do, exactly. Right. Yeah. right. Um, now, Geo Rogers is not a household name, and I suspect you prefer to keep it that way. Yeah. But, but you, you own many properties. Um, is it intentional to keep a low profile, or, or do you just have a lousy PR person? <laughs> yeah, so uh, literally our office doesn't even, we're on the ground floor, you know, in a one-story building in, in, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and we don't have a sign uh, on the door. We don't have a sign on the building. We prefer to sort of stay lower key. Um, you know, uh, we got involved in a partnership with the city of Portsmouth 10 years, started 10 years ago, the process, and it was a lightning rod for, you know, newspaper, media, uh, citizen concern, approval, disapproval. And so we've, we felt like it's better to sort of keep a lower key uh, presence. Um, keep your head down. Yeah, just keep our head down. It's, we're we're not trying to be famous or or, or anything like that. Um, we didn't. When I came on board, we didn't even have a website, um, and uh, I thought that uh, we should have a website. I think that it's important to have a media presence. Uh, I've found that when we go to a broker that doesn't know us or a lender that doesn't know us, the first thing they do is they go, they Google us. Of course. You know, and uh, and check out our website. So our website is more informational. It's not really a consumer website. We don't sell anything on our website. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I think it's helped a lot to sort of lend credibility to our business. I mean, we've been around for almost 50 years and a lot of people don't realize that and if they go to our website they sort of get a little bit of our history and a, and a sample of our portfolio you know let's let's go into some specific properties and we'll be flashing um, on the TV screen uh, photographs of the properties as you describe uh, the company's history with them so if you would give us an interesting nugget or two briefly on the following properties uh, Two City Center, Portland. So Two City Center uh, was acquired 30 years ago, 25 years, I guess, 25 years ago from the Bulos's. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I sold it to your dad. Yeah. And uh, um, great building. We love it. It sort of uh, was a more modern building in its day. It still is a modern building um, versus more traditional architecture. And Two City Center is uh, in the middle of, of Portland, and it's a nice layout uh, where we pretty much have a single tenant on every floor. It's not too big, so it's easy to do that, usually, anyway. And uh, we really like that building. It's well-built, it's easy to maintain, and tenants really love the location and, and love the building. 
And the management, too. That's, I will tell you that the tenants do like the management. Well, thank Which you. You guys self-manage. but Right. Yeah, we self-manage. And customer service is really important to us on a number of levels. And one is we look at our tenants as customers. Yeah. And uh, Sally Leary in our office is our point person for our tenants. And she does a fantastic she job. Does. She's been with you a long time. She has. Uh, almost. Well, I'm going to get into trouble now. But around 30 years, I'll say. Yes, yes. We, we could always edit this. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, another property, Walmart Center in Falmouth. Um, yeah, so Walmart, we sold that uh, seven years ago in Falmouth. And uh, Walmart was going to go to a super center. So we signed a new lease. Uh, we bought out the lease on Hoyt Cinemas. And, um, they and Hoyt's were, was adjacent to Walmart, yeah, adjacent so they were going to expand into the And Walmart. they were going to expand into the Walmart, expand the Walmart into the cinemas. Yeah. And, uh, and, we, and then they started balking at, on that. And, uh, and so, but we had an 11-year lease with them, and, um, and they were paying the, the rent for the cinema. And so we thought, well, they might do it. They might not do it. I also started looking at, we were looking at how internet resistant is Walmart because that was, was in the retail world, we feel that's really important to find uh, internet resistant retails. You know, a, a retailer who can survive or compete against internet uh, services. And Walmart at the time was not doing very well. They had a order from Walmart and come pick it up at the store. It wasn't a deliver to your home type uh, service. Mm -hmm. And they weren't doing very well at the time. Uh, and so we looked at that and we we're just like, well, you know, we got a long term lease. Walmart is kind of wavering on going with a super Walmart. They're not doing real, really well with competing against the large internet re uh, retailers, um, you know, dominated mostly by Amazon. But, uh, and so we decided to sell. And we found a buyer, and um, I, think, I think it ended up being a good deal for them and a good deal for us, and we... We did a 1031 on that and traded it into two other properties. You know, um, I sold that property to your father. Um, it was owned by, I'm pretty sure it was owned by Recall, which was an entity set up by the federal government that took over assets from failed financial institutions. And hmm. when you, I remember your father purchased that for like $2 million, mm -hmm. and it was vacant. You know, yeah, it was um, dark Kmart. Yeah. And I remember asking your dad, I said, you know, because I waited till after the closing, and I said, you know, what was your motivation for buying this? And he said, Greg, where can you find 13 acres of land in the middle of the wealthiest community in the state of Maine? Right. And I thought that <laughs> that's how your dad's mind worked, and it right. made perfect sense at that point. Right. But whereas before, I'm thinking, you know, big, who's going to take, you know, 80,000 square feet or whatever the size was mm -hmm. uh, of a vacant store, uh, but your yeah. father had the vision. and So Hampton Inn, did you 1031 out of Falmouth to Hampton Inn? Yeah, so yeah, out of Falmouth. That's in uh, Freeport, right? Yeah, we did a like-kind exchange for two Hampton Inns, one in Freeport and one in uh, Waterville, Maine. 
So all of a sudden you're in the hotel business. Exactly. It was so my main strategy coming in uh, was to diversify our portfolio. There's a lot of companies and it works really well for them. They stick to a certain silo. Like they'll do big box retail or they do hospitality or they do industrial or they do office or even uh, the medical office segment. Um, you know, we're small and we felt like it for us, it made more sense to have assets in in different silos so that if one silo has problems, the other silos hopefully are uh, the other investments in the other silos are hopefully supporting every uh, the overall family and family of investors. So in today's environment, you know, if you've got industrial, which is doing well, it offsets in office space, which is not doing so well. Exactly. Yeah. And office space is okay. I, I, the, the challenge with office is just that every time a lease comes up for renewal, the tenant seems to be looking for either A, a discount, or B, less space. You or know. retrofit. Yeah. Or, yeah, C, wants a big build out. Um, you know, and so it's just, it's gotten very sort of labor intensive from a management standpoint between rewriting leases. And sometimes they just want to leave because they want to consolidate and into maybe another location they have or, or do something else. And so, we, uh, it just is, it's a lot of work. You know, I, uh, when I look at office space, you get a vacant office space somewhere and you want to fill it. It's an expectation that the landlord is going to go in and put money into the space at the request of the tenant. So, and I compare that to an apartment uh, that somebody might own, an apartment complex. Mm -hmm. You know, a tenant comes along into an apartment complex, says, uh, geez, I, I like this unit, I'd like to take it. But they never say, I like to take it, but you got to move the bathroom over here. Yeah, right. You know, you got to get rid of that second bedroom. Really don't need that. Yeah. You know, open it up into the Add living room. Add another bathroom. Oh, we want a kitchenette, right. you know. Whereas office, you know, uh, somebody comes and says, boy, this space is great, great location. You've got some right. parking. Um, you know, what are you going to give me for a tenant improvement allowance? Yeah, exactly, because we're hiring a designer, and we're going to redesign the space. Yeah. That's, uh, and at, at Two City Center, for example, uh, a lot of the offices in that building are trimmed out with, you know, natural grain wood, oak, oak yeah, you yeah. know, and for the most part, maybe some maple. And, uh, and so a tenant comes in and there's this, all this really expensive maple or oak trim and baseboards and, and windows and, you know, and they're like, ah, let, we want we want to paint it all, you know, and you're just like, no. <laughs> and then you say, well, wait, how long at least? And what are yeah, they paying for us? Well, yeah, you can't. Beggars can't be choosers today in the office world. So that is so true. Yeah, so you you just do what you're asked and try to w come up with a reasonable allowance for for a uh, tenant fit up. Tell us about uh, One Hampton Road in Exeter because you have properties in New Hampshire and Maine. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Exeter is our was our or is our because uh, we have it under contract. So it, sell? It, it may it may sell. We'll see. Um, but it's our medical office play. It's uh, you know a little over eighty thousand square feet of medical office uh, leasable medical office space, and the building's bigger. But when you add in common areas, but. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's been a great building for us. Uh, it's uh, the medical world is, you know, got through COVID 
a little better than maybe office space in general. Um, however, at the height of the lockdowns and everything, a lot of you know medical offices were working on reduced staff and uh, and and only providing essential services. And so um, there was some concessions that we had to, you know, in the office world, we had to do concessions because of closed offices. In the medical office world, there was still some concessions there too. I think one of the reasons medical office space is so popular of all the asset classes is that generally speaking, you put a doctor's group into an office building very expensive fit up. It is very expensive. It's very expensive for doctors to move. It and is. Typically, they won't move. If, right. It was, you know, if they don't need more space, they'll stay where they are. Right. Yeah, that building was only about 50% medical when we took it over, maybe even less. Um, it, you know, our goal with that building was to get it to 100% medical or close there, too. And it, it's pretty close to 100% medical now. Um, and the build-outs have been very expensive along the way, um, but we've gotten that building positioned where uh, companies that specialize in medical office buildings were interested in acquiring it. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, when it was slightly less than 50% medical tenants, uh, it kind of was in a no-man's land. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of interest as we ramped up more medical tenants and, and did the build-outs associated with those tenants. Uh, uh, there was more interest from you know, REITs and private equity firms that specialize in medical office buildings. And just became, even with debt being a big challenge today, um, it, it seemed like a good time to sell. Um, Deer Street in Portsmouth, let's talk about that area. Um, mm-hmm. You... Uh, uh, at one time owned basically that whole street. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the parking garage uh, in Portsmouth, which mm-hmm. is on Deer Street. Right. As I recall, you planned to build a large parking garage, but ultimately sold the land to the city. And, and why was that? Right. So uh, Deer Street, uh, the family acquired, uh, started acquiring assets there uh, through a partnership in 1984. Mm-hmm. So uh, what would be today, 40, 40 years ago, 39 years ago. And um, with the idea that this at some point, uh, because it's uh, central to Portsmouth, would be a great redevelopment opportunity. This, this land was partially originally railroad land, had seen a 1970 urban renewal action where the train depot was torn down and, you know, little strip mall was built and, you know. We had that in Portland, too. Yeah, you know, and so some really great architecture was torn down, unfortunately, for some not so great architecture, but uh, but it is what it is. And it was, when my dad acquired it, he was really something that he thought that we could um, we could redevelop at some point, but he never really had the appetite for it. Um, when I came on board, there some neighboring land came became available, so we acquired it. And then I started talking to other neighbors, and we were able to acquire some more land, and we bought some more land from the railroad. And we actually amassed uh, about, uh, trying to remember now, about three and a half, four acres uh, of land in downtown Portsmouth, all developable. Which is a lot. It's a lot of land. In for a, urban. For an urban city, you know, environment. And uh, 
Um, and so we did a master plan. We were going to do four buildings and a smaller parking garage um, just to sort of suit the needs of the buildings that we were envisioning. And then the city came to us and said, wait, we hear you're going to build a parking garage. We need another parking garage in Portsmouth. What are you doing? We explained that we we're going to build just a little one for our needs. And they were like, well, can you get us a bigger piece of land? And, uh, and then um, we can build a big garage. And first, we were going to lease. We were going to build it and lease it to the city. And then we we're going to do a land lease. But they really wanted to control uh, the garage themselves. They wanted to own it outright. So we just sold them the land. And... And they built the garage, and as but we still needed parking, and it became apparent that we weren't going to be able to um, have all the parking that we wanted if we sold land to the city, but we could retain at least essential, mm -hmm. the essential parking that we needed uh, for the two buildings adjacent to the municipal garage that we had envisioned. And you ended up with sixty-eight parking spaces. Yeah, sixty-eight parking spaces in a six hundred and twelve car garage. And uh, is it, would you do a long-term uh, long lease of those spaces? Yeah, so we had a, an agreement, a contract with the city, an agreement to, uh, to acquire up to 68 spaces as we completed our uh, development projects adjacent to the municipal garage. Yeah. So those spaces were designed to accommodate future development that you had in mind for them? Exactly, yeah. Right. And we had to pay the lease. Uh, you know, it was a license uh, or a lease, you can call it either, um, that uh, envisioned we have to pay, you know, for those spaces. We pay the lowest contract rate that the city has, you know. Yeah. So, so you, but you pay in market, but at the lower end. Yeah. Yeah. We just paid the lower end of the market rate. So t tell me what happened when the new city council was elected, which ran on an anti-development platform. Right. So, um, it, you know, it wasn't an easy process to start with because uh, new development in any seacoast city is a lightning rod for controversy. And then add in a partnership with the city and, you know, oh, we're taking advantage of the city. And, you know, there's just a lot of people. Such, you're such a mean person. Yeah, I, I know. And... Uh, um, and people just, including the press, just don't understand the complexities and the costs involved with doing any kind of a development. And so when they see big numbers, you know, they don't understand the land acquisition involved and, you know, years, uh, you know, uh, of acquiring and holding land, you know, to put together a big enough parcel for the city. Yeah. And, uh, but we got through that process. It took years. Uh, we got through that process. The city acquired the land. Uh, we had the contract signed. You know, the license agreement was signed, and uh, and they moved forward, and we were going to move forward. And then, literally, though, a few months later, there was new elections, and an, and uh, what I would consider an anti-development uh, uh, city council was elected, and um, they ultimately decided they didn't want to honor the license agreement. Which had been signed. Yeah, which had been signed yeah. and mm -hmm. became problematic for us because we were depending on that parking for our land use approvals. Our planning board approvals yeah. included parking in that municipal garage as part of meeting the zoning requirements. So uh, I'm assuming a lawsuit ensued? or Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, we tried for a year to try to work things out with the city. Meanwhile, we're going to planning boards and, uh, and zoning boards of adjustment to ask for extensions. And, you know, 
with, you know, with some success, some not success. People didn't, we couldn't go out and, we didn't feel like we could go out and explain to the general public that we felt like the city ha was reneging on a contract mm -hmm. and um, politically it just didn't seem very feasible for us to try to throw anybody under a bus. And uh, so we were trying to work it out with the city. Ultimately we couldn't. Um, you know, we lost some, you know, some requests for extensions, had to, you know, we pulled some permits uh, to uh, cement the land use approvals at that point, continuing to try to negotiate and then unfortunately have to file a lawsuit against the city, um, which was resolved after about a year and a half, a year and a half after we filed the lawsuit. So now we're like two and a half, three years down the road. Did it go to court, or did, was it out of, out of court? Settlement? It did. It was out of court settlement. Okay. So, so explain to me. You got a signed contract with the right, city, right? How could they justify not honoring it? Well, it's political. It's political reasons. I mean, if you're you feel like your constituency elected you, right? Because you, they want you to control development in, in downtown Portsmouth, and and you know the, Portsmouth is growing quickly. There's a lot of construction in Portsmouth. And I, I understand the sentiment, you know, uh, as far as people feeling like maybe Portsmouth's growing too quickly and there's too much uh, change. Um, I may not agree with that, but I, obviously I'm in a different position than other people. So, but I can, I can understand where they're coming from, but to then turn around and justify, um, you know, basically breaking a, a contract uh, with a developer because your constituency doesn't want to see that development happen right now is, you know, it, it gets a little dicey uh, for everybody, including the city. And then, the, and then a lot of people got really upset with that city council because it put the city at risk for a lot of money. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. So you, you had a number of lots on Deer Street. Um, mm -hmm. What's happened to those lots? Has a hotel went up? Right. So we have a master, we did this master development plan, four lots. You know, as you know, it took about three years to just negotiate the sale of the property to the city. And then, you know, we went going through another year and a half of trying to get the city to honor the contract and then, uh, the parking contract. And then, you know, a year and a half of losses. So we started to lose our appetite for developing in Portsmouth. Um, you know, we're carrying a lot of land um, that we had uh, on some of the, two of the parcels torn down the buildings in anticipation of moving forward. And so we decided that uh, out of the four lots, we'd sell three. Mm -hmm. And so we've sold three of the lots uh, to other developers, and one of which is a hospitality developer and operator. Have they built the hotel? They haven't yet. Now, they just acquired that parcel, I'm going to say six months ago, okay. maybe a little less. Yeah, four months ago, actually. And then for the other lots, do you know what they're paying? And then the other two lots were acquired by another developer, and that was uh, a little over a year ago. And uh, they are going to um, build, at least on one of those two lots, a, uh, con a condominium, a high-end, large footprint uh, condominium building. Uh, foot, large footprint for the condominiums, not necessarily the building. Right. But uh, 
And then you retained a lot for yourself. You could bulldozers down there the last time I was there. Yeah, exactly. So we retained one of the four lots. It was actually, for some reason, it was also a residential project, and we just had a lot hard time getting any. We wanted to retain the hospitality project. We really wanted to build the hotel. But I had a lot of buyers, or I should say we had a lot of buyers for the hotel lot. N interestingly enough, not a lot of buyers for the residential project. I think part of that is, you know, as debt costs were going up, and that was a, a, an apartment project at the time, um, you know, the costs of construction have gone up greatly in the last few years. And so you're looking at high costs of construction. Um, rising interest rates. It, rising interest rates, which translates to a high cost of debt. And to meet, you know, I was talked earlier about debt service coverage ratios, right, to meet comfortably meet debt service coverage ratios uh, on apartments, even with today's rents being quite high, um, it was difficult to, to pencil out. And so a lot, of, a lot of potential buyers just couldn't see it at this time. Um, so we retained that project and we actually decided to convert it to condominiums. Um, the way we had designed it, um, it was going to be a luxury apartment, so we had already done double walls and pretty high-end finishes and, um, you know, double walls for sound insulation and, uh, you know, concrete decks and, you know, so it, it was already designed for either condominiums or high-end apartments, so we decided to make it condominiums. Speaking of housing, could you talk to us about workforce housing? Yeah, so, you know, one of our things, you know, we're, which we're not doing, unfortunately, in our current project, um, you know, uh, is workforce housing. And, uh, and, what, and what is that exactly? Yeah, so workforce housing is important to us because it's, it's, it's housing for what I call the backbone of America. It's for firefighters, teachers, nurses, you know, nurses uh police officers, uh, service workers like hotel and restaurant and retail workers. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the working people of America, right? And we have a shortage of workforce housing. And so I spent nine years on the board of the Workforce Housing Coalition for the Greater Seacoast, which was a seacoast of New Hampshire and Southern Maine. And uh, it's an advocacy group um, designed to bring awareness of where workforce housing can go in to the seacoast area to help alleviate the shortage of housing. Um, and a lot of people, if I'm not mistaken, uh, mistake that for Section 8 housing. or Yeah, well, exactly. Well, one of the things we used to do is design charrettes in the local communities. And a design charrettes where you get a bunch of people together who are technically adept at designing um, and engineering housing, and then you get the community in there too, and, and people would walk in more often than not with the attitude that this is going to be uh, low-income housing, and low-income housing is needed too, but low-income housing can sometimes carry with it a stigma of, of drugs and graffiti and crime. And, um, but this, you know, and that it, it may not be true either, but, it, you know, we're not talking low-income housing here. We're talking really housing for 
the really important people, and it's important for important people for the community, you know, because they provide essential services on a number of levels, whether it's medical, municipal, you know, private, you know, it, it doesn't matter. These people are working there to make our lives better. And of course, they get paid for it, but it's important for them not to have to commute 45 minutes you know, to their job. Yeah, and a lot of times, uh, more more often than not, they can't afford to work in the communities. I mean, live in, live the, communities in the communities where they right. work. They, where they work, they can't, you know. And Portsmouth has a housing authority, and they do a great job at, uh, at you know, building some workforce housing, but it's limited on how much they can do. Uh, Maine has a great uh, workforce housing developer. It uh, goes by the name of Vesta. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and they are, and they're, in the world of workforce housing developers, they're one of the biggest. We've interviewed them on the show before. Oh, have you? Yeah, great. Yeah, they're and great and they're, they, they do a great job. But again, they're just one organization. And, and most of the workforce housing developers, whether they're you know, housing authorities or not-for-profit developers like Avesta and other ones, um, they depend on tax credits. And their tax credits are limited. You know, there's this whole system of generating tax credits to that, that basically to that a state or will sell, right? And then they get revenue for selling those credits, and then they give that revenue to the housing developers, and um, which is a great system to for for uh, mitigating the higher costs of construction and the higher costs of land. But it's, again, very limited, and that's why you don't see more uh, workforce housing developers. Because there's a certain allocation that the government gives the different right. states. exactly. And when you run out of it, in any given year, you run out of it. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, and they always run out of it. It's, it never goes unused. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's switch back to hotels. So you own hotels in Freeport, in Waterville. You acquired them pre-COVID. I'm sure you're doing well. COVID hits. How did you man manage through all of that? PPP money? Yeah. Um, well, with a lot of angst when, you know, the governors <laughs> shut down the hotels. Uh, it was, um, among other things, not just hotels, yeah. but, uh, you know, when, when those lockdowns hit and many businesses were shut down, including hotels, I should say, um, yeah, there was a lot of angst. Because, you know, you still have to pay your salaries of your employees. You still have a mortgage. You know, you still got to heat the buildings. You know, so, you know, you still have utility costs. You still have salaries. Sure, maybe hourly workers are getting laid off, you know. But then the government stepped up with, you know, a couple of different programs, PPP being the most substantial one. And, you know, we actually ended up retaining a, a good number of the hospitality employees um, and basically were, were reimbursed and then some through uh, the PPP program, the federal And you were shut down, but, but not for a long time, right? Or am I mistaken? I'd say about two and a half, well, three months. Was it that long? Yeah. And then they, then they lifted the ban on hotels right. and hotels could open up. And yeah, and then they opened up, but with a lot of restrictions. Yeah, checking know? for COVID cards. Yeah, and I almost think that our hotels may have been shut down for four months or five months. Yeah, that's a long time. Because we, you know, the hotels that could open up after a couple of months or so were hotels that were doing a lot of... Um, 
essential business, they called it, yes. I guess is what the term was. And essential business being uh, like truck drivers who needed a place to stay because they're moving, you know, uh, goods uh, around the, the country, which ha you know, has to happen. Food still needs to move, right? Yeah. You know, clothing still needs to be, you know, moved around. And so there was a lot of essential workers, uh, medical staff, you know, moving around to different hospitals um, and needed places to stay. But we, our two hotels were just not positioned in a, a, for that type of business. Um, it was more tourist. Yeah, our, our hotels were more tourist and business traffic oriented. Um, did the banks work with you? They did. Um, in fact, uh, you know, we, we had some savings, so it wasn't an immediate crisis, but we knew in the long term it was going to be a crisis. Yeah. But before we reached out to our lender, they called us and said, hey, you know, um, we're looking at all our hospitality clients and talking about doing interest only or suspending payments. And I thought that it's like was... like for three months they did it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we ended up negotiating an interest only. We didn't suspend payments. Um, we did interest only uh, for an extended period. I think it was 12 months. Really? Yeah. Yeah. The banks, I think, in this crisis really stepped up. They did. And were proactive. Right. Exactly. Um, for the most part. Let's talk about personal guarantees. So you, you take out a construction loan, you take out a loan on a building. How do you feel about personal guarantees? Because the banks oftentimes ask for that. Yeah, well, especially in construction. It's, yeah, yeah there's almost no way you're not going to do personal guarantees on that. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's just a, a, a way of the world. You know, um, we, you know, I have to provide guarantees on some of our debt. Uh, you know, it's dependent on how much debt there is relative to the value of the property. Right. You know, the loan-to-value uh, ratio determines a lot of times whether I have to provide a personal guarantee or not. Um, you know, and so, but it, it has to happen. Um, you know, one of the interesting things was when I came back, I was not really much of an owner of anything. I mean, I had some investments with the family, but not a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's for me to be guaranteeing the debt and not really have any ownership or maybe not any consequential ownership of that partnership. You know? Asking a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would charge a fee anyway just to make myself feel better about it. To the family. Yeah, to, to the or the to the partnership. Partnership. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. I hope it was a big fee. Well, you know, deals are pretty tight these days. You know, it's hard to charge a big fee, you know. <laughs> um, so we're talking about partners. Do you have many partners in the developments? I mean, particularly the new ones? Yeah, we have uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would say we probably have about a dozen, I'm going to say families that invest with us going back 40 years. A dozen families, really? Yeah. And because these would go back to my dad's generation who's passed away. And a lot of those people that were investing with my dad have passed away, but the families have stayed right. on with us through their heirs. And, uh, these and limited partners? Yeah, limited partners. And then uh, we have a new round of limited partners that uh, we, you know, since I came back on board that we've developed um, that 
is probably about 20. You know, family investors, I mean, they're all individuals or families. Interacting with family members or, or others in terms of your developments. I mean, is it clear sailing or is it a pain in the neck? Uh, uh, you know. Uh, and remember, they're going to be watching. Yes, I understand. <laughs> investors are great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a good group of investors. Uh, for the most part, we don't have a lot of trouble. Uh, we try to be good communicators. We send out uh, financial statements on every partnership quarterly, uh, at least try to. Um, if we don't, it's because maybe we just forgot to do it that quarter. But um, I think we're pretty good about getting everything out quarterly. Um, if there's some important news that we need to communicate, we'll do a little cover letter or email with the quarterly reports. Uh, you know, so I think people know what's going on. You know, and that communication I think helps to keep sort of investors from getting too anxious. But I tell you, when you have a bunch of investors in a project and you're suing a city and everything's stalled, um, yeah, there's a lot of nervous people, you know, because they have a lot of money at risk. Yeah. and A lot of pressure on you. Yeah. And so, um, you, know, the, you know, the good news is for them that, well, the underlying assets, the real estate, is still there. Solid. You know, yeah, it's there. So... Um, you know, the bad news is we can't control necessarily the process and we have to go, go through it, you know, as, as need be. And, you know, there's an expression, uh, partners are for dancing. Yeah, partners are for dancing. Yes. I've never heard that one yes. before. So yeah, yeah. oftentimes true. So doing like the tango? Uh, <laughs> whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, as we sit here in mid-June, early June, Prime rate's at 8.25%. It's really spiked up. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how's that affecting current developments or your plans for developing in the future? And do you have any variable rate loans? We don't. We don't have any variable rate loans. Um, you know, we don't have any debt maturing right now. Um, so most of our debt was put in place more than three years ago. And so we're still enjoying fairly low rates on our debt. You know, we have some debt that will be maturing in two years. You know, we're a little nervous about that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're looking at selling the, the medical office building in Exeter, New Hampshire. And if we sell that, we are going to try to trade that into um, another type of asset, either hospitality or retail. And we're looking at pretty high debt rate, you know, pretty high interest rates on those. And, you know, it gets a little tight, you know, as far as rents coming in, you know, interest payments going out and, you know, structuring the deal so that uh, it works. Um, but we look at that really as more of a shorter term and, uh, you know, we really feel like it's a good time for us to sell this one asset and it's forcing us to be in a position to buy some new assets. And, you know, prices have come down a little bit because of the debt, but not, a, not as much as, as a buyer would like to see. Right. And, uh, and so we're looking at it as, well, we just might not make as much money as we'd like to, or maybe not much money at all for a couple of years until what we think, Interest rates will down. come down and, and normalize. And a do a refi. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be looking at 2 or 
interest rates again. Those days are gone. Yeah, I think it's going to be a long time before we see that. Of course, you know, I've been wrong before. But, uh, um, but I do think interest rates are going to come down to maybe the 4%, 4 to 5% range, whereas right now, you know, we're looking at, you know, we're getting quotes on some of these things we're looking at. One one lender came in at uh, eight and three quarter percent on, yeah, and I, we're like, wow, that's really crazy high. But most of the lenders are coming in around six and a half, yeah. seven. Yeah, that lender just didn't want the business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say. I mean, I remember when I got in the business in the 80s, mid 80s, interest rates, prime hit 22%. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so I've, that's always stuck with me. Back in I've the always, stagflation days. Yes. And I've always thought, you know, interest rates have a you know, chance of going back up. And it's kind of like a pain body. I just remember right, that. Right, right. Um, but I think you're right. I think the rates are going to stabilize. And matter of yeah. fact, the Fed paused yesterday. Uh, they did. Increasing. Yay. Rates. Yeah, for a while. But right. they said that they'll probably still do something. Well, they'll still look at it anyway. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully, I think that... You know, personally, I think that a lot of our, oops, I've been hitting my microphone. Sorry about that. So personally, I think that a lot of our interest rates, hikes, and inflation worries were really energy driven. Um, the, you know, the price of oil, which we follow pretty closely while we're not drilling new wells anymore, we still have some producing wells. And so we monitor what, you know, what we're getting and you start seeing oil going up over $100 a barrel, over $120 a barrel, you know, this just keeps going up and, and the cost at the pump, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but it wasn't long after the changeover in the presidency that uh, gas was like $6, $7 a gallon at the, at the pump. Yeah, it was expensive. It was really expensive. And so, you know, and, and fuel costs drive everything, you know, from production of agriculture to transportation of agriculture to processing of agricultural products. Um, and certainly hard goods, you know. It's in plastic. It's in everything. Yeah, exactly. And so um, to think that you could have oil prices go shooting up you know, and the cost of gas and diesel fuel go shooting up and not get inflation um, was, I think, a little naive because a, a lot of uh, the people at the, you know, Fed Reserve and at the Treasury were saying, oh, this is just an interim issue. I and believe I, the term was transitory. Yeah, transitory. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking at that saying, I don't like, it's I only know, transitory for so. as long as uh, fuel prices are yeah. going to be yeah. up there. But, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, and then the Ukraine war and, you know, there was a lot of factors, obviously, that impacted the economy to cause the inflation. But those things aren't necessarily controllable by the interest rates that the Federal Reserve's charging, right. you know. And so I would like to see them pause. I think that if they keep going, they're going to push us into a recession. And I think that there's a delicate balance there. Um, hopefully, they haven't gone too far already. Yeah, because this is a delay. It takes a while for the there is a delay. effect to go through the economy. Exactly. Uh, Kim, give me some general philosophies on how you run your business. Win-win. 
Yeah, we really strive for win-win, you know, we, and when we say win-win, we look at everybody's a stakeholder for us, whether it's our lender, it's our insurer, it's our employees, it's our tenants, it's our tenants' employees. Commercial real estate broker? Yeah, commercial real estate broker is really high on the list. <laughs> you. you know who your audience is. Everybody is, no, everybody's important. And everybody's a stakeholder, and it's about trying to foster a win-win solution for everyone, um, you know, and which is why, uh, you know, when we have a tenant and they need help with a tenant fit-up, then, you know, we're, you know, we look at ways that we can provide that. Um, you know, sometimes it's, we finance part of it with the tenant. We raise their rent for a period to help pay for some of that allowance. We're, we're giving them some of that allowance, uh, uh, by virtue of them coming on as a tenant and, you know, and just try to create a win for them, a win for us, a win for the broker who's going to get paid for bringing the tenant to us. Um, yeah, so. And our employees, you know, like I said, we have uh, we have employees that really care about our tenants, and so when they call in, right, with a concern or a problem, um, you know, we're taking immediate action on it, and we follow through. Uh, you know, very I'll, rarely I'll you, do I hear back that we've dropped the ball on something. Virtually every landlord says what you're saying, yeah. but I actually know from personal experience because I'm friends with a lot of your tenants that right. that in fact is the way you operate. Right. So. Right. Um, you know, looking at all the vests, and we've only haven't covered all of them, but looking at the investments that you own, the developments, do you have one that you're particularly proud of, or which, what's your favorite, or least favorite? No, I'd say our favorite is uh, our two hotels. Um, even though with COVID and there was a lot of angst and, and cash flow issues there for a year, um, our favorite, you know, on a number of levels. First of all, we, we partner with Main Course Hospitality Group. Peter Anastas' group. Yeah, Peter Anastas, Sean Riley, yeah. and, uh, and company. And they are r really good at what they do, and they're a pleasure to work with. And they really treat their employees very well. And it's a, it's, it, it, there's a lot of synergies there on, on in attitude and philosophies and business culture um, so we really enjoy working with them and they do a fantastic job yeah, they do and uh, interesting enough there was when we went to acquire those two hotels there was some family members and investors who were like uh, hotels what are you thinking <laughs> and i'm like well let's talk diversity of portfolio and investments and they were like, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the nice thing about hotels is that with inflation, you know, as inflation goes up, you can change the room rate yeah. nightly, right? Yeah, right. You can't do that with industrial properties or office buildings. Where exactly. You have long -term leases. Right. So that's the, the upside. The downside is on recessions. <laughs> those rates start to come down very quickly. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so it's, uh, you know, we've had a good run with those hotels, even with COVID. And, um, and again, I have to thank the many people that are involved, the staff of those hotels, Main Course Hospitality Group, you know, um, our staff. You know, it, it, all, it, it takes a village to make something successful. But I'm particularly proud of those two investments because they've done well. And, 
it was something new for us to do, and there is risk when you try to do something new. You know, you do business in Portsmouth and Portland. Pros and cons of the two cities? They're very similar in culture, design, priorities. I mean, um, the people of Portsmouth, the people of Portland are very similar. There's a lot of people who grew up in Portland that live there. A lot of people who grew up in Portsmouth that lived there. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of, I don't know, immigration, so to speak. A lot of people have come in from, from away, right? And, uh, and I think that causes some angst for, for people who have grown up there. And so you get this sort of concern about the growth. You get the concern about uh, development. And uh, but both beautiful cities, both great cities on the water, and both on the water, uh, very similar economies. Portland is bigger, substantially bigger. So P- Portland's got a housing shortage. Portsmouth, too. or Yeah. Every place has a housing yeah. shortage. I don't know of a place in the United States anyway that doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about parking? Parking shortage and well, you know, what? I should back up. Pre-COVID, huge parking shortage in Portland. Um, four-year waiting lists in some of the garages. Not so bad now, right? Because a lot of the office tenants... Yeah, because people are working remotely. They're still working remotely. Uh, mm-hmm. Portsmouth, same thing? Or? Yeah, so, um, you know, actually because, you know, Portsmouth, when they built the Foundry Place garage, which was finished... Oh, boy, now you're testing my memory. I think it was either 2018 or 19 maybe 2019, and uh, and it was finished at the end of 2019, then COVID hit, you know? Mm-hmm. So it hasn't probably seen the utilization that they would like, um, plus the delays in our projects, because that garage was partially there because our projects were going to need parking, you know, even if whether it was licensed or not. And, and so the delay in our projects had the ramification of that garage not getting very well utilized. Um, utilization is up. The, it's allowed the city to remodel its garage. But Port, Portsmouth kind of figured out its par- parking problem by building that garage. You know? and, and, and even with, our, with the developments on our lots or former lots, um, I think that Portsmouth is going to be, uh, because of remote working, is going to have plenty of parking. You know, uh, looking ahead, what, what do you see as some of the uh, major obstacles to growth for real estate in Maine and New Hampshire? Is it the interest rates? Is it the governmental, uh, you know, hurdles you got to jump through? Well, when it comes to development, um, interest rates and you know. Th- government regulation, the land use process has become so cumbersome and so expensive. And, you know, nobody has much pity on a commercial developer. Um, But where I saw it really impact is when you start talking housing, Mm -hmm. you know, workforce housing, and you expect, you know, uh, a workforce housing developer to spend a million dollars on a project before they even put a shovel in the ground, just try to get approvals. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's really expensive. It's expensive. And the, the cities just don't understand, you know, how complex the permitting, you know, the land use process, the planning board approvals, the, 
you know, technical advisory committee approvals, the historic district commission approvals, the you know, zoning board of adjustment approvals, if you can get them even. And then if you, you know, it's just gotten so complex and and there's a lot of back and forth and it just you know, eats up a ton of time, and time is money because you know you're you're using architects, engineers, consultants. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even the you know land, pristine, never touched land doesn't exist anymore. So you're 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 dealing with significant environmental issues on a- almost every piece of land that's available to develop because it's had other uses, and sometimes you know you think those uses have been innocuous, but uh, you know, in the 1700s, early 1800s, people heated, he, heated their homes or businesses with wood or coal, and they threw the ash out the back door, sure. you know, or out in the front yard. And it's, uh, it creates actually a hazardous waste situation and, you know, certainly not a high level one, but, you know, it, you, you, you start dealing with, you know, Anything from moderate level, I mean, it's almost no site in the, that's developable today, short of going out in the woods. Um, that's pristine. Yeah, it's pristine. And, and so you have environmental issues, and, and the environmental regulatory world has gotten just crazy high. I mean, we have some land that was contaminated with coal and wood ash, and it requires that that those soils to be landfilled. They can't be just dumped in a pit somewhere, you know. And so the regulatory costs are just huge. In Portland, we have rent control on apartments. In some, has, yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, has that? Um, gone down to Portsmouth? Is Portsmouth? It hasn't. I mean, Portsmouth is, you know, I, I don't know what's legal or not legal in the state of New Hampshire when it comes to rent control. Um, I think, you know, certainly if you do a workforce housing development, right, um, and if you're getting tax credits or some kind of governmental subsidy to build those apartments or those condominiums or those homes, whatever they may be, uh, there's going to be rent control on those, all right? You know, you're going to be required to meet a certain level um, of rent that depends on, you know, average income, you know. Right. And there's a whole formula that they use. But you're getting something in exchange for that. Right, but you're getting something for exchange. Um, as far as I know, there isn't anything that isn't incentive-based. You know, even for workforce housing, um, in, you know, in New Hampshire, they can't require like 10% of a housing project be affordable housing, workforce housing. Mm-hmm. They can provide incentives in New Hampshire. Um, so they, bonus incentives, like you can build a taller building or a bigger building or, you know, those kinds of incentives right. to, to get the, a developer to voluntarily uh, put workforce housing in their project. I think in Maine, it's a little different. Uh, in Maine, they can uh, require, you know, a certain number of units be workforce housing. Um, they may have rent controls that can be put into place. I think in New Hampshire, it's just different, interesting neighboring states, you know, you think so, same laws, but actually different enough that 
Um, whereas you see that in Maine, you don't see it in New Hampshire. The, the, as I see it, the problem with rent control in Portland is that developers who want to build here mm -hmm. have scrap plans to build here. Right. Now, there are a couple of projects going up, but those were pre-approved prior to rent control. Mm -hmm. And it scared a lot of developers away. And that's unfortunate because, it, you know, supply and demand, you build more apartments, then the chances are rents will stabilize or maybe even come down. Mm -hmm. But when you restrict the number of apartments that you have, you're not going to get any new development. Yeah, exactly. And, and so the people who are pro-rent control uh, presumably are doing that because they want to have more affordable housing, but actually in the end, Mm -hmm. it, it hurts them, and right. I, they, I don't think they understand that. Well, the problem, you know, rent control, I don't know. I mean, do they allow for escalating the rent for inflation? Or? Minimal. Minimal? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's because, a complex formula, but I think it's like 70% of uh, CPI or something like that. Right, well, um, because costs go up too. So, you know, you know if you're... If maybe you're starting out profitable, but then over the years you can't raise your rents enough to keep up with your costs, then it becomes <clears throat> Then the building suffers. Yeah, you don't put exactly. the money back into the property. Uh, you know, I don't know a lot about Maine, but I have a friend who's a developer in Massachusetts who is going to do a fairly sizable Massachusetts project. And in the course of them sort of getting the plans put together, entering into the land use uh, process, uh, the city changed the zoning and required a 25% workforce housing uh, percentage. Yep. And, you know, and that, that project went from, okay, higher debt rate, higher costs of construction, higher interest rates, higher debt costs. You know, it, it went from just being marginally profitable to, uh, no, can't get done. That's right. You know, and uh, and then the city was really upset that he that they weren't going to build it, and you know, and a lot of bad press on that, and you know, the, because the political process doesn't understand necessarily the costs and profit issues. Right. Yeah, yeah, we see that as well. Um, just going back to the hotels for a second, um, do you see a real estate uh, bubble in the in the hotel business? I do in some areas. Like where? Well, there's been a lot where there was a lot of development. Um, like Portland? No, not Portland, actually. I know Portland feels like probably in Portsmouth also, they feel like there's more hotels than can possibly be warranted. Um, but those hotels do really well and have done really they well, do. you know, over the years. Um, we don't personally own a, a hotel in Portsmouth or or Portland, but we've seen we know people who own hotels in those markets, and they've done pretty well. Um, but where you know where they haven't done well is like in major urban markets like Boston, um, the hotels there because the uh, conventions, the trade shows um, haven't come back to where they were before, and there was this, just tons of build out. And uh, and so they're, you know, Boston's been looking at very low occupancy rates even last year, where Maine and New Hampshire saw some of the best occupancy rates that they've seen for years. Right. And so, uh, you know, so some markets, yeah, like seaport area of Boston, you know, over overbuilt and and suffering. Um, you know, Houston. Dallas, I mean, there's a Chicago, a lot of these big cities. And when it comes to leisure traffic, 
you know, if you can go to Portland or you can go to Boston, a lot of people are choosing to go to Portland or Portsmouth. And so those hotels do really well because they're, they're nice, clean, more quiet cities with good food cho- choices, good venue choices, yep. boutique retail, everything that uh, a tourist wants to see. Generally safe. Yeah, generally safe. And, and also close to a lot of outdoor venues, you know, ocean, mountains, you know, beaches. So... Um Let's look into your crystal ball next 10 years. Where do you see commercial real estate uh, uh, in Portland and Portsmouth? Are you bullish on it? I think so because, you know, one of the things that we did is, you know, when we started looking at, you know, we started a a major construction project for our company anyway in Portsmouth uh, three months ago. And so literally went into the ground and or two months ago and, you know, had to look into our crystal ball and say, well, where's the economy going and what are things looking like? And when you look at Portsmouth or you look at Portland, you have to really look hard and far back to find seriously bad times, you know, um, high vacancy rates, uh, you know, for uh, residential or commercial. I mean, there's been periods where it's been more elevated than it is today for sure. Right. But these, those two cities have done pretty well throughout the history of the recessions. Um, with Portland, I always say, you know, compared to Boston, Mm -hmm. you know, Boston goes like this. Then it yeah. goes like that. Right. In Portland, historically, at least as long as I've been in business, it's kind of gone like... Yeah. It's know. very... It's kind of an upward climb with some slight dips and ups and downs. But it seems to always be climbing. Or maybe during a recession, it kind of flattens out. Right. But, you know, you don't see these big drops. Right. And so I think, again, so it depends on where you're talking. But I think for northern New England... Everything north of Boston, I think it's going to be fairly stable, even if we hit a recession. I think you're right. So, Kim, just to, to wrap things up, tell me about GL Rogers in five years. Well, you know, uh, the thing about family businesses is that uh, usually the family keeps expanding. So, you know, I have kids, my brother has kids, my brother doesn't work in the business, but, you know, they're still part of it, right? And, uh, and his kids and my kids are the next generation. And, and so, you know, it, it gets bigger and bigger. And so the company has to get bigger and bigger to support, you know, a, a growing base. <laughs> yeah, a lot of mouths to feed. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of mouths to feed. It's, you know, so there's the family aspect, but the idea is is to continue to grow this company, um, provide you know good returns to the family, to the family of investors, and to continue to uh, do what we do um, and continue to try to maintain a diverse portfolio of real estate assets and and partner with organizations where it you know we can see a strategic relationship will benefit both us and them and and, and our investors so it's uh, that's what we'll do I don't think we're ever going to be huge I mean there's a lot of really big companies REITs you know private equity companies that are more urban-based, like, you know, big city-based companies that just have a lot of money. Right. And, um, 
uh, I don't, you know, we're always going to be, I think anyway, you know, northern New England based, whether we were in Maine for uh, uh, 30 years and now we've been in New Hampshire or we were in Maine for 40 years and now we've been in New Hampshire for like seven. So, um, you know, 47 years, give or take, 50 years, give or take where yeah. our age. But, um, you know, so I think we're always going to be northern New England based. And by virtue of that, that, you know, there's... There's a lot of capital sources, you know, in northern New England, but it's not the same as if you're working in New York City or Boston or Chicago or D.C. You know, a ma major cities, there's just a lot more capital, uh, you know, equity, debt available for, yep. you know, investment. Yeah, I mean, these are still secondary markets. It, they they are secondary markets, and yeah. and we're and the second. It's not only secondary real estate markets, but it's almost secondary debt markets. It's secondary equity markets. It's you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're dealing with families, you know, and individuals, not institutions for investors. Just remember, partners are for dancing. Yeah, partners are for dancing. Okay. Hey, Kim, thank you so much for. Being my guest on the Bolus Beat, this is uh, very interesting. I, I enjoyed it. Okay, thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you too. Thank you for inviting me. My this pleasure. has been fun. Thank you. Kim, thank you for being our guest today on the Bolus Beat, a Bolus Company podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. You can learn more about GL Rogers and Company at the company's website, which is glrogers.com, and on LinkedIn at GL Rogers and Company Inc. And if you'd like to learn more about the Bolus Company, please be sure to visit us at www.bolus.com. You can also find us at the Bolus Company on Facebook and LinkedIn and at the Bolus Co. on Instagram and Twitter. And lastly, if you want to know the secret to owning real estate, it's pretty simple. Just be sure to outlive your debt.